Yeah, Lord, we thank you for giving us the evening together. Thank you for uh, giving us your word and teaching us uh, and showing us who you are. I pray, God, that as we walk through this next session, um, yeah, that we would have the right hearts, that we would have the uh, right minds, that you would give us um, the ability to comprehend the, the little bit of you that we can, that we can know. And so we pray that you help us with this and uh, just ask that you would be with me as I present these things about you and prevent me from saying something wrong. Um, And if I do, would you just take that from our minds and help us, Lord, to just focus on who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, today we're talking about the attributes of God. So this is week two of our Doctrine and Devotion class. Last week, our focus was on the, uh, let's see, the existence of God, the knowability of God. So can we know God if he does exist? And we said, yes, there's good reasons to believe he exists. Uh, And can we know him um, if he exists? And we said, yes, we can know him uh, because he shows himself to us. And, and then we looked at his nature, his very nature being that of a triune God, a God in one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you missed that or didn't get a chance to listen to the recording from earlier uh, last week, that, that's online. You can get to that. And uh, we talked for like an hour and a half on all that stuff. So we won't rehash it all, but if you have any questions, of course, you can bring, bring those up. Um, I said last week that we will have time for questions after every kind of section tonight. So we'll do a section, we'll stop, and you don't have to ask, but if you have a question, uh, you're welcome to ask at that point, and that way we can kind of just tr- clarify things or, or try to help you as best I can. Um, and, and anybody else in the room who can give insight are welcome to do that during that too. So uh, today we're going to continue on in the, in the doctrine of God. So this is the section of systematic theology we're talking about is the doctrine of God. Uh, and there's obviously so much about God that we can't cover. And we're just going to be doing our best to, to do the overview. But we're taking God in two weeks. So, so everything else we'll tackle in, in one week, um, uh, except for Christ. We're going to take him in two weeks. We'll do the person of Christ and then the work of Christ as we get there. Uh, in two weeks um, as well. But when there's a ton to unpack, we're going to try to do our best to, to make it simple. So that's where we're at. Um, so let's just recap real quick. Last week, we saw that we cannot know God exhaustively, meaning we can't know everything that there is to know about God because we are finite and he is infinite. It, the idea, it's almost laughable that we sit in this room and say, we're going to talk about God's nature and character and I mean it's just so it's just so sad actually but but at the same time we can know God truly we can know him truly we talked this is this was kind of our main point about the knowability of God is that we can't know him completely as he fully is and I actually think that's one of the reasons why we need an eternal life because I think every single moment of our eternal life will be learning something new that blows our minds about God. And it'll just literally take eternity and we'll never get bored. We'll never reach the end of it. We'll just keep learning more about this God. And, and so we're, we're trying to uh, understand him with uh, finite minds, with imperfect and sinful minds. And we're just going to do our best with his help and grace 
to do that. But we can be encouraged, even though we can't know everything about God exhaustively, we can know him truly. We really can know him. We can know him truly because he shows us who he is. Because he shows us who he is. And he shows us who he is primarily through uh, three ways. And so these are gonna, this is going to be basically our outline for today. Um, he reveals himself to us in names, in analogies, and in attributes. So we're going to unpack each of these three things tonight and talk through what the scriptures say about God and, and how we can know him is through these things, through the ways that he has shown himself to us. And so uh, God has offered us some real amazing thing here. He has offered us his names. He's offered us analogies and attributes of his to show us um, a, basically a personal introduction or a window into his character. He's given us these things as a grace so that we can know him and we can know him truly, even if we can't know him wholly, completely. And so this is, this is kind of echoed by King David in Psalm 910, who says, those who know your name put their trust in you. Speaking of the Lord there, right? So those who know God's name put their trust in him. What God's name shows us, and by name, I, I, think, uh, I think it's Wayne Grudem who, who, who wrote this really thick, heavy, systematic theology introduction to Christian doctrine, um, 1,200 pages worth of introduction. But um, Wayne Grudem, I think, talks about how the names of God um, really fill all these categories that we're talking about, not just his personal names, but also the analogies that Scripture uses to show us who he is and also the attributes that Scripture expresses that he has. So these are all ways that we can know him and ultimately put our trust in him. Because if we get to know him, we'll have all the reason in the world to trust him because he's trustworthy. So um, my, my main idea here for today is that God, God's act of naming himself is a profoundly gracious act of accommodation and engagement. So what that means is that um, God has been really gracious to show us a little bit of who he is. Um, and that's because we need him to basically dumb himself down in a sense so that we can actually understand him. Uh, we can't get our heads around an infinite God unless he, in some sense, descends to our level. And so God uses human ordinary things to help us grasp who he is, at least the parts of him that he wants us to know. Um, he uses words Words, like human words in language to communicate to us who he is. That's pretty, pretty low, you know, on, on the bar for human beings. He, he shows us who he is through words. He shows us who he is through analogies. And he shows us who he is through, uh, through ultimately the scriptures. So um, we're going to talk through each of these things, the names of God, the, uh, the analogies of God, and the attributes. So let's start with the names. Okay, here we go. On the screen here, you can see uh, these symbols that you may not know what that means. It's not alien language. It's, um, 
It's Hebrew, actually. And I'm no Hebrew expert, so uh, I'm just kind of piggybacking off of people who know much more than I do on this stuff. But uh, this is the Hebrew word that gets transliterated. That's a big word. But transliterated means you take basically a letter and you place it, place an equivalent English letter in its place. So you're not translating. Translation is like taking a word and then making it into an English word that is close or as close as we can. Transliteration is you're just taking the letters of the Hebrew letters and putting them, putting the English letters in their place as close as we can. Uh, It's important to notice that or know that Hebrew has a much different alphabet than English, uh, fewer letters, and no vowels in the Hebrew alphabet, which is, I don't, I don't know how that works because <laughs> I speak English, so I, I don't know how that works. But what you'll see here is that these Hebrew letters are transliterated as Y, sometimes J, you know, depending on how, old, how far back you're going. The old English, uh, people like the King James folks and all those Guys in the 1600s, they, they put J in there. Again, doesn't matter too much, but uh, today, modernly, we use Y, the letter H, the letter W, and the letter H. And so we, being that we can't pronounce words without vowels, we insert vowels. And the way that we've chosen to say that word is Yahweh. Right? We put an A uh, between the Y and the H, and then we put an E between the W and the second H, and we call it Yahweh. Now, it's, it's important to notice or know this, that this Hebrew word, no one today, no one living today knows how to pronounce that word because the Hebrew people did not pronounce it. So it's lost to history. We have no idea how we actually pronounce this word. Um, and in fact, we're just basically plugging in English letters to try to make a word uh, from these Hebrew letters, and there's no perfect direct correlation. So so this is the best we have, but this is the name, or the, these Hebrew letters here are the primary, the most prominent name for God that he gives himself in the, in the Old Testament. It's translated into English uh, as Lord, but if you're paying attention to your English translation, you'll notice sometimes Lord is in all capitals, and then sometimes it's not. Uh, and the reason for that is because they're, they're, the English translators are doing us all non-Hebrew scholars a solid <laughs> by saying, all right, when we translate Yahweh, we're doing all capitals so that English readers know that's the name of God that's being used. If they use the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord, but they'll spell it with a capital L if they're talking about God, and lowercase O-R-D, um, because Adonai can be used just to talk about a Lord in any kind of context. And so it all depends on the context. So a landlord would be Adonai in that kind of context. But when you're talking about God's personal name, they, they spell it with all capital letters uh, for Yahweh. So if they call him Lord God, but the Lord doesn't have all four capital letters, that's Adonai, okay, and so they're trying to help us English people understand what's happening because we're not reading it in Hebrew. Uh, so we're thankful for translators and who, what they do for us. It really is a blessing. It's also a blessing to remember. This is a different, maybe next week's subject, but uh, we didn't have Bibles in 
readable language until the 1500s when uh, guys like Martin Luther translated it into German and uh, John Calvin translated it into French and John Wycliffe translated it into English. Um, like we would have all been just a bunch of people, had no idea how to read our Bibles and only people who were crazy, uh, crazy language scholars would have been able to read their Bible. So we'll talk about that next week more when we get to the scriptures. But, but anyways, so this is the primary name for God in the, uh, in the Old Testament, Yahweh. Here's where it's mentioned first, Exodus 3, 14 and 15. Uh, this is the story of the, the burning bush, if you are familiar with that story. Um, Moses is in the wilderness shepherding, and he sees a, a bush. It's on fire, but it's not burning up. It's kind of a curious thing. So he goes to see it, and uh, the bush starts to talk to him. And that's curiouser, right? So um, God speaks to him out of this burning bush and tells him he's got to go to Egypt and free the people of Israel from their slavery. And so Moses is having this conversation with the Lord and basically says, well, how am I going to convince these people to come with me? Like, who, 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 should, who should I say is sending me? So that's where we get to the context of this passage. God said to Moses, I am who I am. That's an English way of trying to render the meaning of Yahweh. Okay, so the, 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 the word Yahweh is related, very closely linguistically related, and I'm sorry for all of this, but <laughs> trying, to, trying to set up something here. Uh, it's, it's linguistically related to the word existent. Okay, so, or roughly, that's, that's what it's kind of related to is this idea of existing. So God's using that word as a personal name, and the best translation that the English translators have come up with for this is I am who I am. And, and so that's, that's what's happening here. And so then he says, uh, he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, so there's the same word, Yahweh, but now they're trying to, again, they're translating this, right? So I am, or I am who I am, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then here's the key. He says, this is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. So, so God gives us his name. Uh, and, and his name forever is I am who I am. His name is I am. And that's it's a little bit um, you know, hard to unpack in our, in our small brains and all of that. But basically this word is packed with theological importance. This, is, this most likely communicates, what God is saying to Moses and to us through this is that God is self-existent, he is independent, he is self-sufficient, he's eternal, and he's unchanging. So just all of those things like, are wrapped up into this, into this word, Yahweh. Um, basically, 
it's trying to get us to the, the, the functional and central, I should say, central character of who God is. But man, try to translate, you know, from a Hebrew word into an English word and convey all of these realities. Like you just can't do it. It's like human language is limited in that way. Um, so I am who I am is the best attempt they have as our translators to get us to understand what the meaning of this word is and what God is trying to communicate about himself. And what he's trying to communicate about himself is that he does not need anyone to exist. He is just self-existent. He, he has always been and he always will be. So we're not that, right? We're, we have a starting point. And we're going to talk a lot more about these, these particular attributes as we get through this. So I won't spend a ton of time unpacking them here because we will get, get to them. Um, but let's go on to another name of God because there are more than one. Uh, so, Tom, this, is not, this is not question time, Dwayne. <laughs> Hold your questions. Hold, okay. Yes. You have the infinite God and you're trying to use it with our language, you know, it's yes. impossible. Yeah. Just like we can't understand God. It's just That's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh so another another name that the Bible uses for God is the name Elohim. This is again a transliteration of a of a Hebrew word. And again they're importing vowels in there so that we can pronounce it as best we can. This word roughly just is translated as creator. Um, it's used in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. And that word translated into English as God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And then it tells us he created the heavens and the earth. So this creator created the heavens and the earth. Uh, so this name and its translation and its, its meaning tells us something about God, right? It, that's the whole point of this session is, we're looking at how God communicates himself to us and his names are one of the ways he communicates to us. And so we, we learn something vital about God by this name. We learn he created all things. Like, and that's huge. That's vastly important uh, that we're not just cosmic accidents. We're not just, you know, coming out of the, the soup of some, you know, ancient, you know, planet. We, we have been made by God. We have a purpose in that. And so... Uh, again, that, we're going to talk about creation in a future session. So again, we won't get into all the nuance of this, but, but that's one of the realities we know of God. Second name, uh, another name is uh, Elohim Kaihim. Uh, I'm not good at pronouncing Hebrew words, but uh, there's a little bit more like, you know, guttural sounds there, I'm sure, than, than what I can do. But this, this means living God. This means living God. So Elohim is roughly translated God in most cases. Um, Kayim uh, is living. So Joshua 3.10 uses this Hebrew phrase. Today you will know that the living God is among you. So, so now we're told another thing about God. We're told that he's living. He's, he's here. He's not figments of our imagination. He's not just, you know, out there dead somewhere. He, he's living he's active he's in the world and we will know that he's among us as he works among us here's another name uh we're just giving i'm just giving you a sampling here uh, i can't go through every hebrew name for god but here's one 
uh, Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh is the name that means the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And God reveals this name uh, through, um, uh, through um, Isaac. Um, nope. Abraham. Yeah, through Abraham. Uh, taking Isaac. This is, this is the story in Genesis 22 where Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And so they go up to this mountain and... Uh, it's a fascinating story. It's worth studying at some point. But um, there, there he, we, we read this story as modern Westerners and we're like, how could God ask him to do such a terrible, terrible thing? Well, we got to look at the outcome, okay? He didn't, God had no intention of having him kill his son. He, he saved his son at the end of the day. And we never focus on that part. Like, we, we should. That's the whole point. Uh, and, and so as God sends an angel down to stop Abraham from performing this sacrifice. And Abraham looks over into the, the brambles, the, the bushes, and he sees a, a ram caught in the thicket. And so Abraham declares, the Lord has provided. God, God provides. He provided a sacrificial animal to take Isaac's place. And um, of course we know, we should know, that, the, that the, this whole thing, this Jehovah Jireh, this Lord will provide, is fully, completely fulfilled in Christ, as all these things are. Um, they're full, it's fulfilled in Christ because he becomes the true provision for us to have our sins forgiven. And so that little, that story in Genesis, that little story about uh, this ram that's caught in, in the brambles and the thicket and all this thing, and he's given the place of sacrifice for Isaac um, Jesus is that greater sacrificial lamb for us. But I'm preaching now, so sorry. All right, uh, next one, uh, Jehovah Shalom. Jehovah Shalom means the Lord is peace. The Lord is peace. This one comes from Judges chapter 6. Um, this is the story of Gideon. And um, basically Gideon meets this angel. He doesn't know at first that, he, that it's an angel. He eventually figures it out because it completely disappears from his sight. It just vanishes. So he's like, oh, that was an angel. Okay, cool. And then um, in verse uh, 22, I'll read it here. Uh, it says at the end of verse 21, it says, The Lord vanished, the angel of the Lord, excuse me, vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he, that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. So what he's, what he's expressing there is, I'm, I'm a dead man. I've seen you. I've seen, I've seen something of you, and I, I'm not going to. So he's freaking out. Verse 23 says, But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You <laughs> shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. So that is Jehovah Shalom is that phrase there. The Lord is peace. Um, so it, this tells us something about God's nature and character. It tells us that God is a God who wants peace with his people. Um, and we know, again, this is fulfilled in Christ. We know this from Romans chapter 5, that we're brought into peace with God um, through Jesus. So that's, uh, that's Jehovah Shalom. We've got a few more here. El, Elkanah. Uh, El is a Hebrew word that basically means God as well, uh, like Elohim, but this is the shortened version of it. 
But Elkanah means the jealous God. The jealous God. This comes from Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, what does this tell us about God? He, he himself, these are God, this is God speaking personally to Moses. So what does God's character about his jealousy say about him? This is an interesting question because when we think of jealousy, we tend to think of it as a negative thing. It's like it's a bad quality in someone. And it certainly can be as sinful people. We can, we can misuse this. We can certainly um, be wrong in this. But, but jealousy in, the, in, in its purest form is a, is a good thing. And particularly if you think about it in the, in the context of the marriage relationship, if you came to my office and said, you know, my spouse has been cheating on me for 10 years, but I'm cool with it, whatever, it's no big deal. I would say there's something wrong with you, right? Because that's not a normal response. Or I would say you really don't love your spouse because you're cool with them running around on you and that's weird. Like we understand that there's a healthy context for jealousy, and the marriage relationship is one of those contexts. And, and God uses uh, the marriage context as an analogy of his, of his relationship to his people. Again, he's descending to our level and showing us something of himself. And so he's saying, I'm jealous for my people. And that's why they, he, he demands that we do not worship any other God, because to do so would be essentially spiritual adultery. We are to be faithful to him. And there's all kinds of things, uh, books on spiritual adultery. I mean, it's a fascinating subject in and of itself because it's a common and recurring theme throughout the scriptures. But we don't have time to get into all that. But this is one of the names. And this tells us something about who God is. This name reveals something. All right, one last one. And then we'll take questions here. Um, El Roy, I think is how you would pronounce that. Um, This is the God who sees. The God who sees. And again, this is not the totality of the names of God we have. I didn't give you the whole list um, because, again, we could spend the whole night just talking through these uh, easily. But El Roy means the God who sees. This is used in Genesis chapter 16. And this is a this is a really crazy story, but we'll give it my best shot. So Abraham and Sarah, before they have Isaac, are cannot conceive children. But God promises that in their old age, they're going to have this baby who will be the, the, the child of promise, who God is going to bless the world through his family. And we know that this is the, the start of the Jewish line where Jesus comes, and he's the fulfillment of that promise to bless the world. But they're not having any luck having a baby. And so Sarah tells Abraham, gives him terrible advice, and says, why don't you take my, my servant Hagar and marry her as well? So now Abraham's becoming a polygamist, which is not, or a bigamist, I guess, technically. Not good, right? Not how God designed it to be. But Sarah's like, no, take Hagar as your wife and have children with her. And that's how God will do this. So they're basically trying to take matters into their own hands. And so Abraham, being the fool that he was at that time, goes along with this and just is like, cool. I'll do that, whatever. And so, so he has this baby with Hagar. They name him Ishmael. 
And then Sarah uh, gets really jealous and angry. And uh, Hagar's not helping her case because she's rubbing it in Sarah's face that she had a baby and Sarah can't. And it's a whole mess. Like sin really ruins a lot of things. So all this mess. And so Sarah goes to Abraham and basically says, you need to divorce that woman. You need to send her away. She's making me angry. And Abraham basically says, not my problem. You deal with it. Don't care. Because uh, Abraham's a guy. So that's the way it is. <laughs> so, so he's like, not my problem. Not going to worry about this. Very, there's, most problems can be rooted to passivity in men, just so you know. Like as you look at the scripture, it's like men are just passive through the whole thing. Abraham or Adam in, in that story was with Eve the whole time that the serpent's telling her to eat the fruit. Like, what's Adam doing? Why are you just standing there? Like, do something. Anyways, so we're all in this mess because men are passive and pathetic. So, all right, we'll, we'll get there. Uh, but so Abraham says, God, just do whatever you want. So Sarah starts abusing Hagar, like being harsh with her, beating her up, uh, just being awful, like, Men and women are all sinful, right? So, so that's, that's happening. So Hagar runs. She escapes. And she goes into the wilderness. And God finds her there. God finds her there and says to her, listen, your son Ishmael, I will make a great nation of as well. He's not going to be the, my people. But I'll, I'll, I'll do something great with him too. But you need to go back. Now, I don't know what to make of that. Like, I do not know what to make. So that's beyond, our, that's beyond our study today. But he tells her to go back and, to, to the abusive situation. And I don't, I don't, personally, I don't like it, but that's what happens, okay? So I, I'm a man, and I don't understand all of God's ways. So he, she, she goes back. But as she's communicating with God about this, she says, you are the God who sees. You see me. And, and God, God sees Hagar in the wilderness and places his love on her and care for her and communicates with her. And this is the, obviously one moment in time when this name is used, but this tells us something about God's character, that he sees us, that he cares for us. He even cared for Hagar, even in the midst of her, her hardships. But we can have confidence in a God who sees us and cares for us. So again, this is a sampling of the names of God. I've got a book. If you're interested in doing a deeper dive on this, it's a deep one. Uh, it's, it's a book called The Doctrine of God by Herman Bavink. Um, and this is kind of heavy reading, I'm not going to lie. But he, he walks through, if you're interested, you can pick this up on Amazon or whatever. But he, he walks through um, all of this stuff in much more depth than what I can do. And, and he has a whole thing on the names of God and their, their significance. So, but that's, that's where we're at. Any, so any questions? We'll pause for just a second here. Any questions at this point or anything that needs to be clarified? Or, um, otherwise, we can, we'll move on to the next section. But Yes, Garland. So when you say that with his names that you have gone through, it just shows that God does have feelings and cares and concerns. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We're going to talk more about that tonight, too. But that's good. That's a good observation. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Or <laughs> I'm going to ignore you from now on. No. <laughs> Go ahead, Dwayne. Because I, I have some schooling in this. But sure. um, 
I thought there was a name that they couldn't speak the name, and I thought that was Yahweh, mm -hmm. and that's possibly why Hebrew. It, it we've lost how to pronounce that name yeah. because it was a unspoke. It, it it's so high and prominent of a mm -hmm. name that we weren't supposed to talk yeah. or say it. Yeah. Yep. That's what that's what happened. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on. We'll stop with this. Analogies of God. Analogies of God is the second section here. So God shows us things about himself through his names. He also shows us things about himself through the use of analogies. Uh, another word that a lot of theologians will use for this are images, uh, but they don't mean images in the sense of like graven images. They mean analogies. So I've just chosen for the sake of not being confusing, um, using analogies. But images works too. It's like giving us word pictures of, of who God is. When we, say when we say images, we're not talking about making a statue to represent God because that's forbidden by the Ten Commandments. But we're talking about the use of analogies. And so the technical term for this is, ready, anthropomorphisms. Okay, an anthropomorphism is ascribing human form. This is from the dictionary. Uh, or attribute to a being or thing, not human especially to a deity. So an anthropomorphism is the, is the $50 word for God uses analogies of a variety of kinds to, sh to show us something of himself, to give us a, an understanding of his attributes because he's a deity and we're human and we can't understand him. So these analogies are taken from a few different places, four different mainly four areas, from human experience, from creation, from acts, not the book of acts, but like actions, and emotions. So those four areas are the primary kind of broader categories of uh, analogies that God uses. So human experience, creation, acts, and emotions. And I'm going to just give us two specific examples from each of these four categories. And then we'll, I'll also mention some, some of the other ones without looking at them in depth, but two more in depth. Um, this one's probably the most famous or the one that you might think of the most. From human experience, a father is a very typical analogy for God. Honestly, I could have pulled out probably a thousand different verses for this, but Deuteronomy 32.6 says, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you, and established you? Uh, so, so there he's asking a rhetorical question about, do you repay the Lord? The obvious answer to that is, no, we can't repay the Lord. The Lord just gives and we have no way to repay him. And we are foolish and senseless when we think we can repay the Lord for what he does for us. And the reason we can't repay him is that he is your father. That's, that's the rationale that, that this passage uses to show us that we cannot repay him. He's our father. A father's responsibility is to care for his children without the expectation of repayment, right? Like that's kind of the deal. You have kids, you care for your kids, and you don't demand of them uh, to pay you for what you are responsible as their father to provide. You made your kids, 
you are to establish your kids. God does the same for us. He made us, he establishes us, and, and he provides for us as a father. That's an analogy of God. Right? It's an analogy. It's, uh, God is not a human father in the sense uh, that we think of it, right? But he is like a father in an, in an analogy kind of way to his people. This is the most common analogy for God, I think, in the scriptures. We see it in Jesus, obviously Jesus being the son of God. Um, that's the role that the second member of the Trinity plays in, that, in the uh, Godhead. But there's the father, there's the son, and there's the Holy Spirit. So the father takes on that role as kind of his primary identity. Uh, he takes on that role as his primary way of being identified and related to as, as God uh, and how we relate to him as our father. So Jesus tells us to pray, our father who is in heaven. Right? So it's not an earthly father, it's a heavenly father, but we're called to pray to him as father. Uh, Romans chapter 8 says that we can go to him as our father, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is the Hebrew, uh, the Greek word rather for, uh, basically it's the informal use of the word dad or father. So dad would be kind of the English equivalent to that. But because people, trans, Bible translators are a little squirmish about us calling God dad, they say Abba, they just keep the, the Greek word in there because they don't want to stick their neck out and go, we should call God dad. You know? But that's the point. That's what Paul's making the point of is that he is intimately caring for us like like our dad, and we would call him dad if, if, we, if we call out to him, and that way he's not going to be rejected there. He's not going to reject us, rather, from that. So but anyways, fatherhood is a human experience. We all have dads. We may not all know our dads. We may not all have good relationships with our dads, but we all have dads, and so we can understand this. Um, we have to be careful not to put our human experience of fatherhood onto God, though. That's, that's crucial. Because God is a perfect father. And none of us, no matter how good our dads were or weren't, had perfect dads. Had imperfect dads and God is a perfect dad. So, so we need to be careful on this. But that's one of the human experiences that God uses. Here's another one. This is another very common one. So that's why I'm using it. Uh, shepherd. Psalm 23.1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, you may think, um, I don't have a lot of human experience as a shepherd or with shepherds. Uh, that may be true in our, in our context, but it was a very common uh, issue or, or human experience in the ancient Near East where the Israelites lived. We know that the Israelite people were shepherds. I just read this passage in Genesis in my Bible reading this morning uh, where uh, Jacob and his sons come down to uh, Egypt, because there's a famine, and Joseph has set the stage for them to be cared for. And Joseph goes into uh, the chambers of the Pharaoh. He's become the second in command of all of Egypt, and, and you know, providentially by God, has been brought to this position of leadership. He goes into Pharaoh's office, more or less, and says, "Hey, my 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 dad's here. My brothers are here. Um, can they live in the land of Goshen?" which was an area near, near Egypt. And he knew that they needed to live in Goshen because the Egyptians despised shepherds. 
So they wouldn't, for whatever reason, I, that's like thrown out there like we're just supposed to know that. But uh, apparently the Egyptians in that day hated shepherds for whatever reason. And so, But the people of Israel, Israel, Jacob, and all of his kids, they were shepherds. So they had to live in Goshen, a little bit outside of the area, and they were allowed to do that. And, and then uh, we know that pretty much every prominent person in the Old Testament story were shepherds. Abraham was a shepherd. And his whole, his whole crew that followed him were shepherds. Moses was a shepherd after he fled from Egypt and he was born in Egypt to a slave. She saved him through putting him in the basket in the Nile. You know the whole story, right? He, and so he gets saved. He gets brought into Pharaoh's house. He's raised by Pharaoh. Eventually he, he knows he's a Hebrew and so he defends one of his fellow Hebrews, ends up killing a guy in the process of trying to defend this this man, and, um, and then ends up having to flee. Well, then he goes into 40 years of shepherding. So he was a shepherd for 40 years before God called him then back to Egypt or back to yeah, Egypt and uh, help him or used him to help the people be free. Then we get to, uh, you know, we get to King David, who was a shepherd, became the king. I mean, on and on and on it goes, right? Jesus says he is the good shepherd um, in John 10. So all of this kind of culminates but the Lord is our shepherd, I shall not want, is a great example of this analogy being used of God. And what does this tell us about God? What does it tell us about a, his character? Well, a shepherd cares for his sheep. That's the job, right? You, you can't be a good shepherd if you don't care for the flock. And so God has a people, in this analogy, a flock of, of a wayward, silly sheep. And yet he, as our shepherd, cares for us. He leads us. He guides us. So you just read Psalm 23 and you can see all the implications of what being a shepherd meant for, for God to be our shepherd. It means he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. He brings us to green pastures. He makes us lie down. He provides for our, our needs. On and on and goes. So to, Psalm 23 is really helpful in that. Uh, just a real quick overview of a bunch of ones we didn't touch on, but here's a, here's a list. Uh, God's described as a bridegroom, which we don't use bridegroom anymore, but a groom, like a guy at, at a wedding. Uh, we just say groom because, I don't know, we just don't like being referred to as brides, I guess, as guys. I don't But bridegroom is the technical term for it. And so uh, he's described as a husband. He's described as a judge, a king, a man of war, a builder, a physician, and on and on and on we could go. And so uh, that... Those are just some of the examples. And again, Herman Bavink in this Doctrine of God uh, actually goes into great depth on uh, a lot more of them than, than what we can touch on. Um, here's some analogies from creation. Here's the second category. So first human experience, second creation. This one's interesting. Uh, God uses the analogy of birds to describe himself. Isaiah 31.4, like birds hovering so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. So he's using an analogy of birds hovering. What, what are they hovering? Well, they're defending their nest, right? That's, that's what they're doing. When, bird, when, you're, when you're coming up to a nest that has eggs in it or baby birds and the mama birds, you know, getting ready to defend that, that nest, she's going to try to intimidate you by fluttering and flapping and chasing you down and whatever else she has to do. So like that... This, this is why it's an analogy. He's not saying he is a bird. He's saying he's like birds hovering so the Lord will, 
will protect Jerusalem. He's giving assurances to the people in Isaiah's time that God cares for them and will protect them from their, from their enemies as, as a bird would protect uh, their young. So that's, that's an example. It teaches us something about God's protection. Here's another one from creation, a rock. This is a pretty common one in the book of Psalms and elsewhere, but Deuteronomy 32.4 says the rock, capital R, because it's a reference, God's like taking on this name almost, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just justice. So the rock, his work, so we, don't, we wouldn't refer to a rock as him or her, we would refer to it as it because it's an inanimate object. But here is an anthropomorphism. So you're taking uh, uh, an inanimate object, but you're applying to it aspects of, of personhood uh, because that's God is a person. So it's the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. What is, why does God uh, refer to himself as a rock? And this is not the only place by any means. Um, I think the answer to that is that a rock is... is a couple of things. One, it's a place of uh, security, right? A rock is solid. It's strong. You can stand on it. You can. You don't have to worry about it. You know, if it's a huge boulder or a mountain, it's it's not going out, out from under your feet. Um, it's a place of of security and strength. It's also a place where people could seek shelter in those days, right? So you're hiding in the cleft of a rock. If if you're uh, David, King David, when he was being chased down by Saul, went into the caves and, and hid in caves. And caves are rocks. I mean, that's fun, functionally what, if you've ever been to Mammoth Cave down in Kentucky, like it's just a gigantic hole in the ground and it's all rocks everywhere, right? That's what a cave is. And so rocks have a lot of meaning. There's a lot of uh, ways in which this tells us about God, but protection is one, strength is one, uh, just a lot of things like that. So, so that's, those are just two quick examples uh, some other examples from creation, just to rattle them off for you. Uh, I don't have all the references here, but I do have them uh, in, in one of those books, I can, if you care to see it. Uh, but he describes himself as a lion, as a lamb, which are totally different things. So that's, that, again, it's like it's trying to show us something of God's character. An eagle, a hen, uh, the sun, the morning star, a light, a torch, a fire, a fountain, a hiding place, a tower, etc. So uh, that's uh, those are just some of the many examples of natural things uh, that that God describes Himself as, uses analogies for. All right, third category is acts or actions. We've got one here. That's um, one example is walking. Leviticus 26, 12 says, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So God is not saying here that he is literally physically walking among them. God is spirit. Except for in the person of Christ, God does not have a body. Uh, So we know that Jesus is the uh, embodiment of God in the world, but but God is in the Old Testament times particularly not embodied and he's still not embodied as father and spirit. And so here when he says, I will walk among you and you will be my, and I will be your God and you will be my people. He's speaking through an analogy 
that he that talks about God being with us, among us, walking among us. So that's that seems probably pretty clear. Second example is uh, that he wipes away tears. He says in Isaiah twenty five eight, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. So he's speaking there, of course, of the future, a hope of God restoring all things, and that he will wipe away your tears. Now, again, he's not speaking in the sense that God is going to literally physically send a hand down from heaven to wipe the tears off your face. I know sometimes we wish he would, but he, that is for a future day. But there is, a, there is an analogy here of how God cares for his people and sees the tears in, in our eyes and on our faces and comforts us in, in those things. Now, sometimes God does that through the tangible gift of people uh, being in our life and in community. Uh, but God will one day, ultimately, as the book of Revelation tells us, wipe away all our tears forever. And so there will come a day when this will come to fruition totally. But, but this tells us something of God's character. It tells us that he cares for us and sees our tears and so that's one example. Some other examples of his actions. Uh, he's said to be remembering, seeing, which we already looked at, hearing, smelling, tasting, sitting, rising, and many more than that. But um, so again, all these things are things that we experience, that we do, that we understand. God does not um, have a nose or ears or eyes in the sense that we do because he's spirit and yet he can do all these things in, in an analogy kind of way to help us understand aspects of him and who he is so that's those are some examples of that and then uh to your point here we're looking at uh emotions there are there are, god is said to have to feel emotions he feels joy in Isaiah 62, 5, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Well, that should, that should speak loudly to anybody who's gotten married, right? Like that day is like important day, big day. There's a lot of joy. There should be a lot of joy in that day. And, and to think that that's how God rejoices over us. That's amazing. And it's, it's encouraging. It's humbling. Uh, we don't deserve for him to feel this way about us, but this is what the Bible says. So God expresses joy in this. And he also expresses grief in the next chapter, Isaiah 62, 5. It says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. God can be grieved. The, the New Testament affirms this as well. Um, and so he feels joy. He feels grief. He also feels anger, feels love, feels hatred, he feels wrath, he feels. God, God is speaking to us through these things as the scriptures teach us that these are the emotions that come out of him. Now these are analogies. They're help, he's, he's an infinite God is trying to help finite people who intuitively understand what grief is, who understand what anger is, who understand what joy is, we get this because this is part of the human experience and we're made in God's image, as we'll see in a couple weeks. But, but the, these expressions of God's emotions 
are not imperfect like ours, but, but they do tell us something of his character. Okay, uh, before we go on to the next section here, um, questions, comments, thoughts? Okay, you guys can ask afterwards if you ever have questions, but we'll keep going. Last, ses- last section of this evening, so this will take us a little longer because um, this is the, the real meat of, of what we want to talk about. Um, we're talking about the attributes of God. So we've, we've seen that God has shown us something of himself through his names. He has shown, him, shown us something of himself through his analogies. And he shows us something of himself through his attributes. So let's define that word attributes. God's attributes are his essential characteristics that make him who he is. Um, so the central essential characteristics that make God who he is is the definition of an attribute. Okay, those, those and, and so now we, we're gonna get a little bit, a little bit technical here, but God's attributes are classified typically in two categories. The first is, Fancy word, incommunicable, that's one category, or communicable. Okay, so incommunicable attributes are the attributes of God that are not shared by us or any of his creation. They are totally unique and distinct to who he is. So they're incommunicable in that they're not shared. They're not com- There's no community between us and God on those attributes. Communicable attributes are those that are shared. God has a, now we're going to talk about both of these categories, but communicable attributes are those things in God's character that we would resemble something of in our lives as well. And so we're going to talk about both of these categories. We'll take them one at a time. And I'm just going to rattle through again cannot look at every attribute of God that the scriptures give us. So I'm just, I'm pulling out some samplings, but, but we're going to take a deeper dive into these. All right, so let's talk about incommunicable attributes. The first one we're going to look at is independence. Independence. Here's the definition. Independence means that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet we and the rest of creation can glorify him and bring him joy. So here's what I'm, here's what I'm doing with this. And I'm, I'm totally stealing this from Wayne Grudem, okay? But uh, here's, here's what's helpful. This, the first half of that sentence, before the comma, is the definition of the attribute. The second half after that comma is kind of correcting any misunderstandings we may have about this attribute. Okay, I think that's helpful because to say that God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything, period, may lead us to believe that we don't glorify him. We don't bring him joy. There's nothing in us that that he likes. That's not true. We we can and the rest of creation can glorify him. In fact, they're called to glorify him and bring him joy. So I'm trying to balance this. Actually, Wayne Grudem is trying to balance this and I'm just hijacking all of his hard work. So that's, that's the way it, work, it works, you know. We don't reinvent anything. So 
Uh, so that's helpful. I, li- I appreciate that I'm going to give him credit where credit's due on this because it's kind of his formula there. I think that's helpful. But let's look at some scripture because this is where we see these attributes come out is in scripture. Um, I'm going to give kind of one main text and then there's some other secondary texts that we can look at and, and we'll just pull a sampling of those. We won't look at all of them. But the, the big text that makes this, this point of independence clear is Acts 17, 24, and 25. And in this context, the Apostle Paul is speaking these words. He's in Athens. Uh, he's, he's observed around the city all of these temples to all of these gods. And he noticed that in every temple to these, foreign, to these other gods that the Greeks worshipped, they had people working in the temple to like feed the god and bathe the god and do all kinds of weird things for this statue that is just a statue. So, so Paul gets on this and he goes, here's the truth. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So there Paul is correcting a a false theology of of polytheism and the fact that all of these gods in the Greek pantheon needed help. It's kind of weird to Paul. He's like, wait a minute. I thought gods weren't supposed to need help because the God who created the heaven and the earth uh, doesn't need help. He doesn't live in temples made by, man, by, by people. He doesn't get served by people. He doesn't need anything from us. And that's the point, is that God is independent. He, he actually is truly, and this is, we do not share this with God because we are truly dependent for existence. We're truly dependent for salvation. We are dependent on God for everything, life and breath and everything. That's what we're dependent on. So that's crucial. Um, just to pull out a few of these examples, uh, we looked at Exodus 3 already, the I am that I am uh, passage. We won't go back to that one because it's kind of conveying this idea that God is who he is. He doesn't need any, anybody. Um, but let's look at uh, just Job 41.11. Uh, at the end of Job which is a story about a guy who suffers terribly and, and gets really bitter about it towards the end. He, he starts out really good. You know, he, we always commend him for the start. But then as you read the book, he just gets darker and darker and it, it gets pretty, pretty rough towards the end. And he starts to question God. He just starts to kind of go after God and go, why are you doing this? And God start, basically spends like four chapters just schooling him on, on all this, this stuff. And one of the examples is 41.11 says, who has, given, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So, Again, God's just asking these rhetorical questions of Job, and he says, man, who has first given something to me that I have to pay them back for it? The obvious answer is nobody. Um, that's the point. Is like, no, nobody actually can give God something that he has to be repaid for because 
God gives to us life and breath and everything. So we, what can we give to God that he hasn't already given to us? And in fact, in our, in our, um, in our worship services, we often read uh, Romans 11, 33 to 36 is our benediction. If, you're, uh, if you've been at church you know, for about a month or more, you've at least heard us read this once. Um, but Paul quotes that, that passage in verse 35 but what he says first is, oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So he's just walking through these attributes of God, his riches, his wisdom, his knowledge. And he says, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That's a quotation from Isaiah. And then he quotes Job, says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? So he's kind of... Uh, He's paraphrasing more or less this passage in, in Job by saying, God asked Job, who has given me something that I have to pay them back? And Paul brings this around to show us that God is truly independent. And here's how Paul in, in 1136 of Romans says, says it. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And now out of muscle memory, you all get up and leave the room. No. Um, so that's, but that's where, that, that just highlights this reality of his independence. He doesn't need us because everything comes from him and is through him and is for him. All right. What, let's look at just uh, Psalm 59 through 12, and then we'll talk about what, what, why this is important. Um, I just want to give you another passage to consider. And there, you can write... The rest of those down and read them on your own if you would like to. But um, yeah, Psalm 59 to 12 says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all, the, all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. So here um, is a psalm, and, and the psalm is teaching us something about theology. It's teaching us that God doesn't need our animals. He doesn't need our stuff. He doesn't, um, he doesn't need us to give him anything. And he, in fact, that's what, he, that's what he says in verse 8. He says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you, your burnt offerings are continually before me. So he's like, you guys are offering me all these things all the time, but I'm not going to accept them because I don't need them. Uh, and this is just sort of a period of judgment in Israel's history. And again, we can, and that's a whole other discussion. But he's making the point that everything in the field is his. All the, all the cattle on a thousand hills belong to him. He literally doesn't have any need for us to give him anything because he already owns it. It's his, he's independent. All right, and so we could, you could also look at 90 verse 2, but we're going to, let's look at the quick implication for this. What is the, what's the importance of this? Well, it's this, that God never experiences need. So serving God, as we serve God, should never be motivated by the thought that he needs us because he is the provider of everything. So our, our, the implication of this is that God doesn't need us for anything So our motivation for serving him should not be because, oh, God, poor God, he needs my help to watch the babies during the church service. So I guess I'll be in the nursery this week. 
because poor God needs my help. Like, that's obviously wrong. And, and nobody, no true Christian would, would get to that place in their hearts, I don't think. But, but that's, that's where this, this doctrine guards us against that idea that God needs us. So serving God isn't, isn't motivated by his need. It's motivated by the fact that we're called into this and, and can actually joyfully serve him knowing he doesn't need us to serve him. But he wants us to. And he, he calls us to be participants in that. And that's a good thing. So there's, there's some implications for you. Um, let's look at another, uh, another attribute that's incommunicable. This is not shared. Uh, immutability. Well, that's a fancy word. So let's talk about that. Um, immutability is a, is a $50 word for meaning that God is unchanging in his being. In his perfections, his purpose, and his promises. Okay, so God is unchanging. And so you say, well, Tom, why didn't you just say God is unchanging? Because I make, I should have, sorry. Immutability is the fancy word for this. But uh, God is unchanging is, is what it means. Okay, he doesn't change in his being, his perfections, his purposes, or his promises. Now, what's the correction? What's the counterbalance that Wayne Grudem gives us? Yet, God does act and feel emotions. And he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. So we need to be careful not to confuse immutability or unchangeableness with inflexibility. This doctrine does not teach us that God is inflexible or he's rigid or he's unable to move in the world, in the real world. It says the opposite of that, in fact. But it is saying that he does not change in his being, so who he is at the core. It does not change, he does not change in his perfections. So he doesn't one day wake up and become a sinner. He can't do that. He's perfect in those things. He's, un, he's unchangeable in those things. He doesn't change in his purposes. So the things that God intends to do ultimately are not changed. And his promises do not change. There's a lot that we need to unpack about this one. So let's look. Malachi 3.6 says this. This is a very short, sweet verse that tells us this. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So this, is, this kind of makes me laugh a little bit. Because he, basically what he's saying is, is, the Lord does not change. And that's good news because otherwise I'd kill you all. <laughs> That's what he's saying. So uh, he's like, you should be really happy that I don't change because you'd all be dead right now, right? Um, and so that's, but that's a really important attribute that God does not change. He's immutable. Let's look at some examples of this outside of Malachi. Um, oh, there's so many here. Um, Psalm 102, I guess we'll go there because that's kind of a couple verses we can, and I'm already in Psalms. So look at that, boom, perfect. Uh, Psalm 102, verse 25 through 27, says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish. They will perish. The heavens and the earth will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same 
and your years have no end. So there we're, we're told uh, clearly, right, that heaven and earth will pass away. All this will change. Everything's going to wear out like a garment, right? Have you ever put your socks on and there's suddenly a hole in them that weren't there yesterday? You're like, what the heck? I just bought these things. Garments wear out. What doesn't change is God. God is the same. He's going to be the one that changes the robe because he's not going to be changed in any way. He's just going to be there. So you are the same. Your years have no end. There's an example. Uh, We can go to the um, book of James real quickly here. James 1.7. Oh, yeah. Sorry. 1.17. Thanks. Good catch. Uh, says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom, so with the Father of lights, there is no variation or shadow due to change. So there's the analogy of like the sun moves throughout the sky and it casts shadows on different things as it moves, right? Because it's moving. Uh, and we're moving and it's moving and all of it, right? But the, the world shifts and changes throughout the day. So where a shadow is at sunrise, it's not going to be there at sunset, different sides of the earth, all this good stuff. But God's not like that. There is no shadow. There's no variation due to change. God doesn't change. This, this leads to an interesting question, though, and this will probably be the only one that we do this with, but... Um, some of you might maybe are thinking, doesn't the Bible say God changes his mind? Let's talk about that one because I think that's an important thing. You may read, in fact, if you're reading through the Bible, you're going to get to the book of Exodus uh, 32 and you're going to go, wait a minute, Pastor Tom said that God doesn't change and yet here God changes his mind. Let's, Let's read this real quickly here and just set the context Uh, And there's a few examples of places where it seems to say that God changes his mind. Exodus 32, 9 to 14, Isaiah 38, 1 to 6, Jonah 3, 4, and verse 10. But let's look at uh, Exodus 32. I think this is a good one. This is the story about the golden calf, right? So uh, if you remember from Sunday school when you were a kid, you know, Moses goes up to the mountain, uh, gets the Ten Commandments. He's up there for a long time. We don't know how long, but he's up there for a long time. The people of Israel start to get worried that he died. And so they're like, okay, cool. Well, let's just make a God that we'll say is the God that brought us out of Egypt. And they, they give Aaron, Moses' brother, all this gold. And he melts it down and he makes a golden calf for them. Again, a bunch of boneheads, right? We're all just, they're all just a bunch of boneheads. But Aaron does this for them. And then Moses comes down and sees them all worshiping this golden calf and he freaks out and and God confronts Aaron and 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 Aaron says oh all the people gave me the gold and I just threw it in this pot and out came this calf magically out out came the calf like he totally doesn't own the responsibility for making the thing it's like just magically it pops out in the form of a calf like give me a break right all right so God gets really ticked off rightly so and verse 9 through 14 He says, um, here we are. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people 
and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Just let me say this. As a preacher, I can't help it. I got to say this. Uh, stiff neck there is the Hebrew phrase for stubborn cow. <laughs> so they're play- he's playing on this whole thing of the golden calf. He's going, just like that stupid cow they made, there are a bunch of stubborn cows too. All right, so stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, leave me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So God says to Moses, I'm going to kill all these people and I'm just going to start over with you, man. Like you're, you, you and me, we'll do this. And Moses, for inexplicably, because I'm like sold, these people are obnoxious. I would have, I would have been all over that deal. But, um, but Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, another name for Jacob, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. So that's what Moses prays. God, don't do this because if you do it, the Egyptians are going to say, you just are a mean God who takes, took them out to kill them. Like, why would you let your reputation be ruined? That's what he's basically, that's the pitch essentially. And then he says, oh, and you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would use these people. Verse 14 is the key verse. The Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So that leads to an interesting question. Does God change? Does he change? Does he change his mind? So these are interesting things. And Isaiah 38, similarly, Jonah 3 is a quick one to tell you about. Um, Jonah 3, Jonah, Jonah goes into the people of Nineveh finally after running away and getting swallowed by a fish and then spit out on dry land. Then he finally shows up to the city he's told to preach at and God tells him to tell them in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That was the whole sermon. 40 days and Nineveh's toast. And then the people of, the people of Nineveh actually repent from the worst sermon ever preached in the history. The, the people repent and they, and they change their direction. And it says that God relented of the disaster he was going to do to them. So there's some similar examples, okay? What does this mean? This is what Wayne Grudem says about this. This is a direct quote from his systematic theology. He says, these instances should be understood as true expressions of God's present attitude or intention with respect to the situation as it exists in that moment. If the situation changes, then God's attitude or expression will also change. This is another way of saying that God responds differently to different situations. So it kind of goes back to the point I tried to make at the front of this is that God is not inflexible. That's not what immutability teaches. It doesn't mean that God's not going to respond to a situation differently as the situation changes. God is flexible. He's nimble. He's able to get in there and do what he needs to do. But what doesn't change about God is his core nature, his ultimate purpose, his, his 
plans and promises, those don't change. None of, and no, none of those verses that we can read of God relenting or changing his mind diminishes that reality. It, it doesn't change his true nature. It doesn't change. He changes in the situation, but, but he seems to be pretty flexible. In fact, there's another story uh, of his flexibility, which didn't work out the same way, but the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, Abraham had his, his nephew Lot uh, kind of settled in the, the valley around Sodom and then eventually just moved into this, this city. And God tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy the city because it's just full of wickedness. And Abraham says, basically plays this deal with God and says, well, okay, God, if, if there's like 50 people in the city that are righteous, will you spare the whole city? And God said, yeah, I'll spare it for 50 people. I'll do it. And then he said, well, okay, how about like 40? And God's like, sure, for 40, I'll, I'll save it for 40. Okay, okay, maybe 30, how about 30? You know, he just, he keeps bringing down the number and God keeps saying, sure. If you can find, if we can find 30 people in that city, 20 people in that city, 10 people in that city, God gets all the way down to 10. He's like, if there's 10 righteous people in that city, I won't destroy it. It got destroyed. So there you go, right? That's the, but so God is flexible, he works. The story in Isaiah that, we were, that, that was referenced here is the story of Hezekiah, where God told Hezekiah, you're going to die. You have a disease. You're not going to be cured. And then Hezekiah prays, and God says, all right, I'll give you another bunch of years. God moves and directs. Like, God is, responds to us, but his core being is not changeable. So here's the implication of this. God can always be trusted because he always keeps his word. He always keeps his word and he is unshakable, yet he is willing to respond to our present needs. We can pray to God knowing that he can change situations and circumstances. God will do things for us because he loves us, but he, he doesn't change who he is. He works within the situations we find ourselves. There, there's a difference there. We need to distinguish those things. So a lot of times people will accuse, you know, the theologians like, like Grudem and others who believe that God is in, immutable and unchanging. And they'll point to all these passages that I just mentioned and go, he's not. Look, look, he's changing his mind all the time. Well, first of all, those are like three examples. Okay, there's not a lot of them, but they, they, are, they are there. And so we need to reckon with them. And I, excuse me, I hope that that uh, at least is a little bit helpful. Okay. <clears throat> Next incommunicable attribute. Eternity. Eternity. This means that God has no beginning or end and is in no way bound by time. Although he's, so, so that's, the, that's the main definition. Here's the, Here's the course correction in case we have missed thoughts about this. Although he sees events and acts in the world in time, which is, in fact, one dimension of his created order. So he is outside of time. He has no beginning and end. He's not bound by our time like we are, but he does work in time, as we just kind of saw in the last session here, section. Uh, He works in the world a part of his created world. Time is created by God. Um, We're bound by it. This is why eternity is not a a communicable attribute. 
you might go, okay, well, doesn't the Bible say in John 3, 16 that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life? Yes, amen, we love that. But that does not mean we have eternity. We are not eternal because we have a beginning. God has no beginning. He is just self-existent. He just is. He's just there. We don't have that. So we're not everlasting to everlasting. We are finite. We have a starting point. Now we will have no end. But it's interesting that when you read in the book of Revelation, um, I may be jumping ahead. I don't, can't see all my, my notes at once here, but uh, I'll just say it here. And if, if we get to it, I'll skip it. But he, he says in Revelation that there is a tree of life that has 12 different fruits and there's a different fruit for every month. So it seems like there's going to be some sense of time in eternity. That there, is, that there will always be some degree of time that exists, or at least some notion of time passing. Because otherwise, why would God's word say there's a tree that has 12 different fruits and every, every month there's a new fruit on this tree? There has to be months to have... Right. So, so anyways, that's a, kind of another thing. But here's a picture. Um, I was going to snap the picture out of the textbook, but it just kind of looked goofy. So I drew it for you. That's going to look even goofier. Ready? <laughs> Here we go. All right. So this, and I also, I also took, drew it because I wanted to put 2022 in here because it says like 94 or something <laughs> in the book because that's when the book was published. But here you have God, big circle. The timeline, you see the timeline, creation, cross, 2022, eternity. um, And God is present eternally and simultaneously at all of these points in history. Right now, God is, this is so hard to wrap our heads around, right? Because we just do not think this way. We cannot wrap, we can't get our heads around this. Because so God is right now, see, even talking this way doesn't work, right? Because we're talking about time. But even now, he's with us here. He sees the cross of Christ. He sees creation from the very beginning, from eternity past even, and eternity future. He's, he's at all of these stages all at once because he's eternal. He doesn't have any moment where he's stuck in the dimension of time as we are. So here's a passage, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, and the world from everlasting to everlasting you are God so from everlasting to everlasting you are God um that's that's just huge like that's a statement of eternity that and so it's the best way we can kind of wrap our heads around that there are a whole bunch of verses I'll give you a few minutes if you want to write them down uh I don't think we have the ability to go through a lot of these, but let's go through, um, well, we'll just read 90 verse four, just a couple verses after that one, and then we'll call it good because it's 7.30 already. We got we got a lot more to cover here, so I'm gonna try to go kind of quick. Um, it's hard because all of these deserve a lot, a lot of time, but uh, verse four says, for a thousand years, in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So a whole thousand years is just like, ah, oh, I guess that was yesterday. Uh, and, you know, this is echoed also in First Peter, Second Peter um, as well. So a whole bunch of 
passages there, but we got to keep moving. Um, implications of this. Those who trust in the God of eternity can know peace, rest, and comfort in the busyness of life and in spite of impending death. For God keeps them safely, in safety rather, and joy forever. We have a God who knows it all from beginning to end. There's nothing that takes him by surprise. And he keeps us and holds us. And so in the hecticness of our life, we know that God is above it and beyond it. And we know that even as we face our own death one day, uh, God will bring us safely home to him. Okay, uh, next one, um, omnipresence. Omnipresence is that God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present everywhere with his whole being, though he acts differently in different situations. Um, I might have mistyped that. I don't know. But let's just go with this. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and he's present everywhere with his whole being. Uh, you can probably disregard that, though he asked. I think I just didn't erase that. Okay. Um, so here's the, here's the passage, Jeremiah 23, uh, 23 and 24. Am I, a, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I can not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth? So he, he's speaking here about how he's everywhere. He can't be, we can't hide from him. He sees us. Uh, Psalm 139, 7 through 10 tells us that if we, if we go to the heights of heaven, he's there. If we go down to the depths of Sheol, he's there. There's nowhere that we can go and he's not present with us. So God is present, omnipresent. Omni is uh, basically a word that means all. So all present uh, is more or less the meaning of that fancy word. So the implication of this, again, I'm sorry, I got to fly through because we're going fast. God can be sought anywhere regardless of place. Believers don't have to feel lonely because we're never truly alone. We have a God who is with us regardless of where we go. If you somehow end up on a desert island all alone for the rest of your life, which will probably be short, um, God's there with you and, and he won't leave you. That's comforting. That's a good thing. All right. It's hard to keep a preacher from preaching, so we got to keep moving here. Um, unity. Unity. Um, <clears throat> this means that God is not divided into parts. He's completely unified. Yet we see different attributes of God emphasized at different times. So... We've been talking about a bunch of different attributes and the temptation is for us to think, okay, here's this over here and here's that over there and here's this and here's that. But that's not how this works. God is unified. He's not divided into parts. The attributes that we've been talking about are not part of God, but are actually his whole being, including all his attributes. So here's a couple pictures for you from the textbook, from the systematic theology uh, so this is one way to not think about it, okay? Because this is just like, okay, here's love here. Here's knowledge over there. Here's truthfulness over there. And this is all just separate little bubbles. That's not right. And it's not even like this. This is another way to not look at it, where God is in the circle and you just have all these things attached to him. That's not exactly how it works either. 
what it more looks like is this, and it's kind of a blurry picture. Sorry about that. But um, basically, the, think of the attributes of God as these triangles, and you've got all these lines that interconnect, and they're all a part of his being. So if you're a picture person, that might be helpful for you just to think about all of this, the unity of God, all of these attributes are all of him, all at once. They're not just parts of him. Okay, um, any questions quickly about that before we go on to communicable attributes? Yes, sir. Yeah. All these examples. And that's not so right now. Right. Okay. So that, that, that there is some something to that. Yeah, God God will at various times manifest specifically and locally in, in cases like that, where he his presence needs to be um specifically tangibly seen in that. Like when Jesus was embodied on the earth, he was in one place at one time. He couldn't be he he left that part of deity behind for that season of time, if that makes sense. So yes, there's times where God, yes, shows himself tangibly in a place at a moment, but that doesn't remove the fact that he is at the same time as that everywhere also. And at this time he chooses not to? Well, at this time he chooses to primarily uh, manifest as the Holy Spirit in each of his people. So so he dwells within us uh, in that way, but but he's also everywhere simultaneously. Yeah, does that make sense? Kind of <laughs> clear as mud on that. Yeah. No, but there may be a time that he chooses to show himself sure. specific, in specific ways. Well, and he will. Yeah, and he will at the at his return for sure. He'll be pre- bodily present at his return. Yeah. All right. Good question. I appreciate that. Hmm. Well, Christ has a body. So, so, that, so Christ will come back and embody. Okay. Yeah. And we'll get to that when we talk about the person and work of Christ, too. Yeah, because that's a good question. Just a quick comment. Yeah, yeah. This whole thing, too, is, you know, there's a lot here last week and this week. And what's helping me is the Trinity. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you kind of lay it all out, yeah that's awesome yeah cool thank you all right well let's talk about some of the communicable attributes again we're not going to touch on we didn't touch on all the incommunicable ones that exist uh we're only going to give you a sampling of these as well um if you want more you can get the systematic theology book there's a lot more detail and if you want to read on it but i'm going to give you the overview So communicable attributes are those attributes of God that we also share in to some degree or another. And that's important, okay? Because none of the things that we're going to talk about do we perfectly embody. We're sinners. We don't have perfection as God does. God perfectly exhibits these things. We share in some piece of it as his image bearers. And we'll talk about what being an image bearer means in a couple weeks yet, but... But let's look at some of the communicable attributes. I'll try to define them, and then I'll try to explain why we have a piece of these. Because this first one might throw us off. Um, holiness. Holiness. So God is holy, right? The, the definition of this is that God is separated from sin and devo- devoted to seeking his own honor. 
God is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own honor. Revelation 4.8 is just one of many examples of God's holiness. The four living creatures, this is a scene from heaven, as John the Apostle was given a glimpse of these things. The living creatures, each of them with six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So just as to go back to the eternity thing, who was and is and is to come is another way of expressing that reality. But the main key we're looking at here is that he is described as holy, holy, holy. Holiness is that, is that um, total separateness from sin and anything wicked. He has total moral perfection and he is totally unlike anyone else um, in that regard. But how does this become a communicable attribute? Well, the answer to that is the gospel. Um, It is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ given thus or given to us, I think is what that was supposed to be. Autocorrect probably ruined that. Given to us by grace, God calls his people to be holy as he is holy. As God gives us grace and he gives us his righteousness, he calls us to holiness. He calls us to be separate from sin. He calls us to be like him. Be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Right? We see that repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament as well. Um, Hebrews 12.10, I'll give you just one quick example before we keep flying through here. Um, Hebrews 12.10 says, um, uh, For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, our fathers on earth, he's talking about. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. So we're seeing that the the discipline that the Lord brings to our lives um, is ultimately so that we can share in his holiness. So we won't, we're not perfect in this. None of us have reached perfection in, in moral purity as God has. But as Christians, we know we're, we're on the way there. He will make us to be like he is one day, truly and finally. Uh, an implication for this is that God should be feared and obeyed. And his people are given the holiness of Christ, which enables them to earnestly pursue moral purity. So two sides to that. The holiness of God should compel us to fear the Lord, not be afraid in the sense that we're cowering in the corner, but there's, but there's this deep raw, uh, awe and reverence for God because of who he is. That's why the angels night and day forever say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He's just, if we saw him in his fullness and purity and perfection, we would, we'd all die. Like that's just the reality. None of us could stand in that, but that should make us fear and obey him. And yet we know that the righteousness or the holiness of Christ has been given to us and also enables us to pursue righteousness or moral purity. So there's one communicable attribute. Here's another. This one is, Love. God's love means that God eternally gives himself to others. God's love means that God eternally gives himself to others. Love is giving of yourself to others. So when God loves us, he eternally gives himself to us. 
And of course, we can share in this, but we can see first, God is love. God is love. One, First uh, John 4, 8. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Galatians 2.20, Paul says that God, that Jesus loved him and gave himself for him. 1 John 4.10 also tells us that God is love. So love uh, is one of the attributes of God, and, and it's described very clearly in 1 John 4.8. Implication for this is that our imitation of God's love is also seen in our love for others. That's clear from 1 John 4.11. John 13, 35, Jesus tells his disciples, uh, by this you, they will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. If you love each other, the people outside of God's love will know that we are his. Moreover, our love for our enemies especially reflects God's love. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies and bless those who persecute us. That uh, is impossible to do without God's help, right? No one by nature wants to love their enemies. But, but that reflects God's love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, God's love was displayed at the cross. So that's, that's one more. Another one, sovereignty. Sovereignty. This one means that God has absolute rule over creation as king and total control and determination over all that happens. Now, that's a hard one to swallow, right? But this is true, that God is completely in control and he is truly the king of all the world. So many passages on this, but um, Daniel 4 says this, I bless the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion, that's another word for his sovereignty, his kingship, is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He does according to his will among heaven and earth, and none can stay his hand. None can stop him, is what they're saying. And say to him, what have you done? We, we cannot look at God and say, how dare you? Why did you do that? God is sovereign. God is in control. God rules and reigns in the world. So many passages here express this. Uh, Ephesians, I'll just go to Ephesians 1.11. I think that's a good example of this. Um, from the New Testament says in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will God works all things according to what the counsel of his will what he wills he accomplishes God does what God wants to do. Another great passage, I don't know if it's listed in here or not, but in the Psalms, it says God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. That is the definition of sovereignty. Doing whatever he wants to do, he does it. 
because he's sovereign. Now, how does this, um, how is this a communicable attribute, not an incommunicable one? Well, like I said, these attributes are ours to some degree, not to the fullness, but I, I would argue, and I think Wayne Grudem would argue this too, that, um, that our share in this is that God has called us as human beings to care for the earth, right? In that creation mandate, when God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden and he says, you take care of this thing. In a sense, we have responsibility under God to care for the world, to, to, do, to exercise oversight, to exercise authority. We may not be kings. We may not be queens. We may not have ultimate say over a lot of people. But in your, if you're a parent, you have been given sovereignty over your children for the time they're under your roof. You just have. That's why God says to honor your father and mother. That is a little taste of sovereignty. It's not the fullness. And we have to be careful not to abuse it because it's easy to abuse as sinners. But, but we're seeing that this is an attribute of God that we do share to some degree. So the implication of this is that there is nothing that's outside of God's loving care and control. This is a comforting thing. See, if God was sovereign and also evil, this would be a terrible thing. Right? Who wants to live in, in a universe with an evil God who also has all power? That would be horrible. But, it, but because we don't have an unloving God, we have a God who is love, his sovereignty should not discourage us. It should actually greatly encourage us because nothing is outside of his care, his loving control. And so we should obey and submit to him as humble subjects. That should be our response. That we go, okay, Lord, you, you, know, you did this. I don't understand it. I may not even like it but I trust you with it because you're good and you have a purpose. I think that's what Paul tries to get to in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. That includes bad things, like things that we would say are bad things, right? And, and so all of that works together because God is loving and caring and in control. All right, uh, omniscience. Um, omniscience means that God knows himself and all things actual and possible, past, present, and future. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible, past, present, and future. Basically, there's nothing that God doesn't know. That's what omniscience means. We'll just fly through, guys. Uh, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. First John three twenty really running out of time. So we got to keep, keep going. Um, implication of this is that all of God's thoughts and actions are perfectly informed by perfect knowledge. So he's perfectly trustworthy. Now we share in this, even though we don't have perfect knowledge and total knowledge, he does give us knowledge. He gives us the ability to reason and rationally think through things. And that's a part of how we reflect him as his image bearers. So that's why it's communicable. Wisdom. God is always, God always rather knows and chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. Wisdom is a moral as well as intellectual quality. So basically what we're saying here is that God always knows what's best and he knows how to get to what's best. And so there's a moral dimension to this and there's an intelligence dimension to this, but God possesses both 
perfectly. Daniel 2.20 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. We see in 1 Corinthians as well that Jesus is our wisdom from God. Uh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 29. We see the wisdom of God all over the scriptures. And, and yet we're told in James that anyone who lacks wisdom needs to ask from God, who gives generously to all without reproach. So we share in this because God is willing to give us his wisdom as we ask for it. God's wisdom is not always clear, but it is great, deep, valuable, and should be highly desired and sought. And we should not doubt its reality, even in circumstances that upset us. Okay, I think we got one more to look at. Wrath. Save the best for last. Um, Here's what this means. This means that God intensely hates and responds with anger to all sin and rebellion. God hates every threat to what he loves. I want to propose to you, I know this isn't a popular attribute to think about, but um, if God wasn't a God of wrath, I think this would be a much worse world than it is. (laughs) Like God does deal with things that are wrong. He, and that's good. We, we want him to. Revelation six fifteen to 16 says, then the, then the kinds of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the rocks and mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. So this is describing those who are in, rebellion against God and the, the final wrath that God's going to bring upon uh, unrepentant people. And basically this is expressing the reality that th- it would be better for boulders to crush you than to have God's wrath come to you. That's a, that's pretty, it's pretty dark. Um, but, but there is a good thing in this. We can see, obviously we saw some examples of this in Exodus um, when we read the golden calf story. Romans 1, 8, uh, 18 rather, talks about the wrath of God. Um, a number of passages that deal with the second coming deal with this as well. So you can look at those at some point. But here's the implication. Um, God hates sin, and so should we. God hates sin, and we, we're, we should be glad that he does. Right? And we, God should be greatly feared. Unbelievers should fear his judgment and turn to Christ who took God's wrath from us on the cross for salvation. So as Christians, we have no reason to fear the wrath of God because Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross. But, but unbelievers should fear him. And that's why this, this actually tells us This gives us some compelling reason to come to Jesus because he took the wrath of God from us. Um, We've got, yeah, just a few minutes here. I want to get to one quick thing. So I'm going to skip this. You guys can ask me questions at the end here, but I want to make sure I get this in before we run out of time. Um, I want to talk about how Jesus is the image of God. Um. Dwayne, Dwayne did touch on this last week, helpfully, and I, I'm going to go back to Colossians 1.15, which says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
the firstborn of all creation. So when we talk about the attributes of God, when we talk about how do we see God, how do we know who he is, and we've looked at all of these different parts of him, we need to recognize that it is actually Jesus who fully and completely shows us who God is. Like all these other things, they're all true, they're all biblical, but Jesus becomes the embodiment of these things. He is the image of the invisible God. We can't see God in his, in his completion and fullness and holiness, but Jesus became a, a bodily picture of this, of this invisible God. And the firstborn of all creation, that's a, this is a technical point. It's important to know. This doesn't mean that Jesus was the first person created. That's how some, we talked about modalism and we talked about all those things last week. What this is really talking about is that Jesus has the authority of all creation. Firstborn in that culture meant that you were in charge of the whole, the whole estate. So if you were the firstborn, you were in charge. That's what, we, we miss that in our context a lot because we don't really function that way. Like firstborn don't, don't necessarily have a birthright the way they used to um, in Paul's day. So when he's talking about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, he's saying that he has the authority over all creation as God's, uh, as their creator ultimately. And that's where he goes to say that God, Jesus created all the, the things, but right. the verse um, is right after that state that Wayne Grudem uh, goes on to say that Jesus Christ is the most definitive revelation of all of these attributes to see God's character we look ultimately to God incarnate for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ 2 Corinthians 4 6 in the cross of Christ all God's major attributes are displayed in condensed lucidity his wrath grace justice mercy sovereignty goodness love holiness compassion wisdom and power meet there for the world to see when discussions of god's attributes become esoteric and ster- and sterile that it is the face and cross of christ that restores radical clarity reality and compelling beauty so i think that's a good spot to end here um any any questions about anything that we've dealt with? And we've got about five minutes till we promise to wrap up. So, um, okay. Speak now or forever hold your peace. No, just kidding. Um, you guys can always approach every, every, if you ever have a question, you're, you're able to ask me, Dwayne will be available. Nathan's available. Anyone that you um, trust can, can speak into things too. But next week we will uh, talk about the doctrine of Scripture. So that's where we're heading next Thursday. Uh, let me pray for us and then you guys will be dismissed. Uh, Jesus, thank you for giving us the opportunity to just look at who you are and um, this amazing picture that you have brought down to us of the, of the triune God. And we pray that you help us uh, to take away from this what we need to know you and love you more. And we pray that you would give us just a ton of grace uh, to keep digging in and keep learning about you. And we pray that this um, is helpful for us as we walk with you day by day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Hope you have a great week.